A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley for a final time this week. Yes, goes around quicker every time I'm in this chair. But Matt will be back on Monday. And in the meantime, we've got a great podcast for you today. It's 40 years since Michael Foote went to the country on what his Labour colleagues called the longest suicide note in history. So what have the big political parties learned since 1983 about writing manifestos? We have a fantastic panel. We've got Phil Tinline, historian and friend of the show, on what went wrong in 1983 and what's gone wrong since. Aisha Hazarika, who helped write Ed Miliband's manifesto in 2015. And Robert Colville, who helped write Boris Johnson's in 2019. Don't miss that, but first, it's time for The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, this morning I'm joined by the columnist and author, Timandra Harkness. Good morning. Hiya. Down the line, Jimmy McLaughlin, who hosts Jimmy's Jobs of the Future podcast and in a previous life was an advisor at number 10. Hello, Jimmy. Hi, Patrick. Uh, How are you both? How are you, Jimmy? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, it's a glorious Friday morning. Doesn't really look like one out the window of the studio here, but we'll uh, we'll grin and bear it. Tamandra, are you well? I am well, <coughs> oh, apart from a frog in my throat. Well, I was going to say you don't sound it. <laughs> you know, you uh, some tea here, yeah, you dr- you drown that with uh, with Times Radio Canteen's finest tea, and we'll uh, we'll get cracking, shall we? Right, we'll talk about the front page of this morning's Times. Feels like a front page. A lot of us have read before. Uh, Members of Parliament will vote on proposals to bar colleagues from entering the parliamentary estate or joining taxpayer-funded trips if they are being investigated by police over serious wrongdoing. Uh, Jimmy, I'll start with you. You know, when you were working in Number 10, how big an issue did did this feel? Because no government can get its agenda through without relatively disciplined, I'll put it no more strongly than that, MPs, particularly when you're talking about the Conservative Party in the past decade or so. Did you expect things to end up where they have now? 
Well, yeah, when I was in number 10, the sort of start of the Me Too scandal was beginning to rip through not just Parliament, but um, you know the whole of the Western world. And I think it's interesting that we're still seeing it five years later, and you're still seeing it as well in terms of the business world as well, which is another world that I spend a lot of time in. You know, you've had all the scandals around the CBI and so on over the last few months, and you are having people's careers ended before you know anything has been proven and i i I worry about that and the sort of direction that we're taking in so you've had cbi you've got all the stuff around philip schofield as well and you've got it in um politics and parliament which shows what a real problem we've got across all kind of different sectors here and i think it's quite important for parliament to get this right because that's probably where gets the highest scrutiny do you agree to mandra do you think this is this is sort of a real, real sort of moment. I think it's really tricky, actually. I mean, I, I, because you are meant to be innocent till proven guilty. Mm. So being under investigation by the police does not mean you've definitely done something. And politicians are elected by their constituents to go and represent them. So it, it does slightly open the door to people making malicious claims and keeping somebody out of action until those claims have been dealt with but on the other hand you want parliament to be a place where people can work together and when you get onto serious sexual harassment or assault then obviously you know that is a problem for working together yeah it's interesting we were speaking to jenny simmons who's the sort of shop steward for uh, parliamentary researchers to the chair of the gmb union's branch in parliament and she made exactly that second point which is well look it's a safeguarding issue people have the right to one know who's investing under investigation and have confidence they can be safe in work but a lot of our texters our listeners this morning are making your first point which is well hang on due process innocent until proven guilty there's also the democratic element anonymous texter here says a government with a small majority is struggling to get through controversial legislation it arranges for serious allegations to be made against opposition mps which starts police inquiries mps suspended now that's perhaps a little bit conspiratorial in its thinking but but stranger things have happened stranger things certainly have happened i think yes stranger and more ruthless things have happened i was i'm a bit squeamish about the word safeguarding when we're talking about adults in a workplace i mean safeguarding is usually something about children and young people and perhaps you know especially vulnerable adults people with special needs and so on I, I think if I was in a workplace and someone said oh we're, we're safeguarding you then I would start to say whoa 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 I mean you know if something happens let's deal with it but I'm not a child Jimmy do you do you sort of pick up from you know obviously in public there's a huge incentive for business people to look like they are you know, not throwbacks, and they are aware to these changing cultural dynamics. But what Timandra just said, do you ever hear that sort of sotto voce off the record from from business people who are sort of slightly baffled by by what's going on? Yeah, and I, I think yeah, there are people that are quite worried about the sort of direction that it's taking place in. I mean, you know, to sort of give examples and so on, imagine if you know, claims were made against the sort of leader of the opposition three months before a general election was called, and therefore they weren't able to attend Parliament to hold the government to account. Now, that's a quite extreme example, but I think we've really got to think through what the logical processes are. Everyone wants to be really strong on this, right? And we have to have safe environments for people to work. So that's why a lot of this is being put forward at the moment but we do also need to think about the consequences longer term of when you put these things in because they're very difficult to row back as well well i think this story is going to run and run and i don't think 
um, that this is the last time we're going to have this particular debate uh, about this particular uh, House of Commons. Uh, right, so let's move on to another big political story. The government taking the, its own COVID inquiry to court to block the release of Boris Johnson's WhatsApps and diaries, despite Boris Johnson himself wanting them to be released. Indeed, Boris Johnson giving them directly to the COVID inquiry this morning. Um, big question, are they going to win? Well, this is Fiona Bruce on Question Time with the BBC last night, talking to the Government Minister, George Freeman. The judge who's on the inquiry set up by the government who appointed this judge is saying it's up to her mm-hmm. to decide what's relevant. And, for example, if it shows that ministers are spending a lot of time talking about other things when perhaps they should have been spending more time talking about COVID, that is relevant to her. Yes. Uh, it's now... Sub Judice, and I can't really comment on it. But oh, I come would, on, George. Do I you would agree, with, no, the you agree you, with the I'm government? You agree with the government? I have to be careful, but I would tell you that I would be very surprised if a court doesn't take that view. So the government seems to think it's going to lose this case, Timandra. But do you understand why they are, or do you appreciate or sympathise with them trying to defend the principle that actually private ministerial communications on WhatsApp, even if they're adjacent to the business of the day, should should maybe remain private? I'm very sympathetic to that, but I think it's really interesting this is happening kind of in parallel with the online safety bill Mm. where the government seems to be pushing that there should be no such thing as a private conversation on an encrypted service and that, in principle, all of those conversations should be available to to be read, to be made public. So I, I wonder whether the whole process of taking it to court was about trying to pin down when you should and shouldn't be able to access those messages in order to clarify it for for the other reason. I mean I do I do think that you have to have room for private conversations in life generally and also in politics. I think there there are conversations that people need to have off the record and say, well, look, you know, I think you're you're pushing on this and I think this is really misguided. <coughs> Excuse me, or uh, you know, or here's here's an idea I've got, but it may be completely bonkers. Can we talk about it before we make it public? Mm. I think that's an important part of politics, and because particularly in COVID times, those conversations had to happen on WhatsApp and not in person. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? There is definitely a layer of speech in the workplace that's sort of between formal decision making and above sort of casual chat, isn't there, Jimmy? Sort of, And I was saying to Matthew Paris yesterday, Times columnist, of course, who used to be considered MP and worked very closely with Margaret Thatcher in her private office, that in the old days, now imagine when you were working in Number 10, you'd have those conversations in the corridor, by the photocopier, in the gents, in the pub. You, you know what I mean? And now sort of WhatsApp means those sort of water cooler conversations, there's a permanent record of them, which must be quite quite scary yes i think it it is quite scary i thought matthew had a lovely line in the newspaper the other day saying that we're in the most document rich but explanation poor age that we're ever going to be in and i think that's really really true with this stuff and i think it's actually quite a key part of the way you think in, in business and government but you know you try and implement design thinking principles at times and just to unpack that like you know, you you think okay what would we do if money were no issue or what would we do if we didn't have any money at all so you should try and sort of you know have these conversations where you sort of open up kind of creative thinking for how you might get through to a problem as tamandra says that can sometimes mean that you might have some sort of slightly bizarre ideas that you know once they're then put on the front page of the of a newspaper look slightly ridiculous but that is part of the process that you need to go through particularly when 
you are dealing with something that hadn't happened in a century. And I think we we sometimes forget that now, that we've all sort of, you know, we, we've got much more used to what happened in the pandemic. But when this was first happening in March and April 2020, there was no playbook for how to handle this. So I am sympathetic to the idea that, you know, these conversations shouldn't all be public. But I do think it is with the modern advances of, of technology. It's a problem that we're going to talk about many times going to turn our attention to something hap- that happened earlier this week. Baroness Kidron, the British filmmaker and advocate for children's rights, took to the stage at the Meta Shareholders Conference to accuse Mark Zuckerberg of putting profits before children's safety. Uh, we're joined now by Baroness Kidron. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so why did you decide to take this uh, rather bold stand in front of Mark Zuckerberg and his shareholders earlier in the week? Well, Uh, I was actually asked by a number of shareholders who have tried year in, year out to get more uh, transparency around uh, children's safeguarding at Meta across its platforms, because, of course, it it, it does include Instagram, uh, which is used by many, many young people. people. And uh, every time Mark Zuckerberg uses his controlling share to push it back. And so they asked if I would be willing to sort of take a stand. And I thought that he should hear what his platform does. And and he should be accountable to the voting that that he does. And and I think it was uh, it was met with a bit of a gasp. I can imagine I can imagine. How do you even get into the Meta Shareholders Conference? Do you own shares? No, I don't. So I did it on behalf of three different uh, uh, shareholders, including an interfaith group in America, an individual shareholder, and so on. They and and I think that it's worth saying. I think that that Mark Zuckerberg owns approximately fifteen percent of the shares, but he has more than fifty percent of the voting rights. Okay. So you cannot put something through and win without him. Right. But we did get 16 percent of the vote, which is more than, I believe, just more than half of those people who can vote who are not Mark Zuckerberg with the golden ticket. So I think what you have to understand by this complicated uh, numbering is that there's a lot of people within the meta shareholding group who would like to see more transparency around actual child uh, safety. And speaking of child safety, Baroness Kidron, you've written for the Times Red Box today about uh, the f- not letting AI hinder the fight against child abuse. Just give us a brief summary of that. Yeah, a few months ago, I was uh, approached by a specialist police force who were struggling uh, to to actually bring cases in the metaverse. And they were seeing some really disturbing things. One of the things that they saw is that the advances in AI were allowing a sort of fake um, child sexual abuse. So taking pictures of real children, changing them slightly, to the order of predators, and then making so many thousands of images that they couldn't work out what was real, what was not real. And what they were saying um, was that two things, really. One is, how are we supposed to find the real children who are at risk if there's so many fake children? It's like a, 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 a ghastly game of whack-a-mole. Um, and, and the second thing is, you know, that they were noticing that the offender pathway, that is the pathway between the time when someone sort of engages with that material and then they go and seek a real child, was being shortened dramatically. Really? 
these rehearsal rooms, as it were, online. Uh, Timandra, what do you think of this? Because you've written about AI today. Uh, yes, a slightly different angle, I think. I was responding to the the recent uh, letters from people in the business saying, oh, we're all doomed and AI is going to cause an apocalypse, So, which which I am sceptical of. I mean, I think that the things that Baroness Kedron is talking about are, are real practical problems, but then I don't think they're of an existentially different order to other problems that we face. They are bad people using the tools that whatever they have means to they have possible yeah, exactly there. i think i think the thing that i don't believe is that ai is at the point that it's more intelligent than us that it's going to have agency that it's going to do things of its own accord uh, i i i think it's very interesting that people have this scenario in their mind i think it reflects very much what they think of human beings and then they project that onto the ai uh, jimmy just in a sentence or two do you think the world of work is ready for the impact of AI? Probably not. I think it's going to have an enormous impact on the world of work and the world of education. I am optimistic as well about the future that AI brings. I think it will create a lot of jobs, but there is going to be big disruption when it comes to the world of work and it's going to be a real challenge. That was Timandra Harkness and Jimmy McLaughlin. And remember, to read any of the columnists you've heard this week, just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. 1983. Yes, 40 years ago, Culture Club were top of the charts. Microsoft had just released the first computer mouse. Bjorn Borg retired from professional tennis after winning eight Wimbledon titles. And Britain was heading into a general election. Now, she had won the Falklands War, but it wasn't going to be plain sailing for Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Unemployment was on the up 
and the economy was in recession. This is Mrs Thatcher speaking in a 1983 party political broadcast. From the first day I became Prime Minister, I've been gratefully aware of an understanding of a trust that came from people in all walks of life. I believe that is because people knew that our proposals were honest and right. Unemployment is a tragedy, not only for those who are out of a job, but for their families, friends, and for every person who is desperately worried, and rightly, that many who want to work can't. The plight of the unemployed will be at the forefront of our minds. Now, when the Conservatives won in 1979, some in Labour thought it was only a matter of time before they regained power. But then came the Fulton's War. They'd also had the split uh, of the SDP, the Social Democratic Party. And then the party published its 1983 manifesto. Its main campaign pledges, including leaving the European Economic Community, abolishing the House of Lords, abandoning the United Kingdom's nuclear deterrent, and a range of full-blooded left-wing promises on the economy. This was Michael Foote in 1983 talking about that manifesto. Britain cannot afford to continue with the present policies. We cannot afford to continue with policies of mass unemployment. That means pouring down the drain 15, 16, 17 billion pounds a year. It means pouring down the drain our precious North Sea oil and wasting it. We can't afford mass unemployment and this, this other policy is the one that explains why and how we can travel in the opposite direction. Well, that manifesto didn't go down well. The Labour MP, Gerald Kaufman, earned himself a place in posterity when he dubbed it the longest suicide note in history. Roy Hattersley said, it, at barely 37 pages, it only seemed interminable. But why was that manifesto such a disaster? Did it really lose Labour the election? And how should we view it today? What are the lessons the big parties can draw from Michael Foote's mishaps in 1983? I'm joined now by the political historian and author of The Death of Consensus, Phil Tinline. Good morning, Phil. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, Phil. All the better for be being joined by the author of The Times Political Book of the Year. We love having you on this show, of course. And someone who lived, despite your fresh face looked, the 1983 general election. Yes, yeah, sadly enough, it's the first election that I watched. I was nine years old. Um, I remember June the 9th flashing up on the news and was very excited about this. I remember the uh, Conservative leaflet had gone through a friend's door, a uh, friend's parents' door, um, which had 10 reasons to vote Conservative, 10 reasons not to vote Labour. And I was very, very struck by the fact that the 10th reason to vote Conservative was simply said Margaret Thatcher and the 10th reason not to vote Labour simply said Michael Foote. I remember Michael Foote with his stick and so on. Since then, I've obviously discovered... Michael Foote's extraordinary political career, which was coming to a rather sad end at this point. But no, it was a, it was an ex astonishing election to see as your first one because it was so brutally decisive. You know, ends up with a majority of 144. I mentioned some of the issues as I was introducing <clears throat> this item. Unemployment, a recession, the Falklands War, the split of the Social Democratic Party from Labour. Um, describe some of the background. Well, um, the key thing here, I think, is to see it in terms of the sort of long arc of, of history, rather than it just being a sort of, you know, uh, a kind of sitcom of uh, comedy of errors, much as it is that as well. Um, Labour has been, uh, you know, in, in one way, going with the political wind ever since 1945, when Michael Foote is elected uh, to Parliament for the first time. 
And it's uh, from then on, you know, the idea of the post-war consensus, the idea that mass unemployment, as you heard Foote say there, is not only a tragedy, as Thatcher carefully described it uh, in the clip you played, but something which is intolerable, the great nightmare which must not be allowed to happen. And what has changed by 1979 is that that is no longer the case. And, and it is extraordinary that in 1983, unemployment is over three million you know, once an intolerable figure, and yet she wins this huge majority. So, uh, as you say, there's also the split in the SDP. The big change in the Labour Party after the sort of period of Wilson and Callaghan, you have this move towards, uh, you know, a much more uh, politically radical party. I think one of the mistakes that's sometimes made about the 1983 manifesto is it's entirely backward looking. It's a sort of purely Wilsonian document. In some ways, it is quite Wilsonian. There's stuff about engineering and science based innovation and so on. Uh, and of course, a five year national plan very wilson and uh, the white heat of technology but it's also one informed by actually rather new thinking uh from what we now tend to call the benite left the so-called alternative economic strategy which has policies which you know seem in one respect completely sort of do lally you know import controls and so on but also actually something which is is new and what's got's going on there therefore is an odd fusion of of some of that old labor policy but also the left's version of breaking from the post-war consensus one of the things that one of the many things in some ways that ben and thatcher had in common was an antipathy to consensus an antipathy to the post-war uh settlement and and this in a way yeah, it's it's fudged and the story's more complex but in some ways this is the story of of the left's version of what should follow the post-war consensus it's just not one that people want to listen to and that is embodied in that manifesto and looking at the times archive ahead of this item i was struck by even at the time so that manifesto comes out you get that washbish comment from gerald kaufman who obviously like roy hattersley who we just heard about in the introduction to this item and um, is on the right of the labor party he's from a very different ideological tradition from michael foot so he's hardly impartial you know described as the longest suicide note uh, in history. But even then, the striking thing is, if you look at the report from the Times, uh, from reports from the Times at the time, there's an awareness in Labour that, okay, the, as ever, the full manifesto, we don't necessarily agree with all of it as a party leadership, and there was there were efforts underway to sort of pare it back and sort of spin it in slightly more consumer-friendly ways, even as the election was going on. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it is a, a, a compromise, and it partly speaks to the way that Labour is, you know, internally not only ideologically but sort of organisationally divided. I mean, this is a manifesto that comes out of a campaign document that's been developed by uh, NEC committees. You have the extraordinary figure of John Golding, a trade unionist and right wing Labour MP, who the, the self styled hammer of the left. Indeed, so claimed in his uh, in his uh, posthumous, appointedly posthumous memoir called "The Hammer of the Left," uh, that um, he had deliberately allowed uh, Benite policies, even though Ben actually was sort of in some ways losing power on the NEC, that he had allowed Benite policies uh, through the barmiest policies, as he put it, so that in an election which he thought it was inevitable that Labour was going to lose, the left would take the blame for that. Now, that's a sort of auto-conspiracy theory at one level. I think it's a little <laughs> more complex than that. But um, I do think that there is a there is a, a something about a divided party trying to devise a manifesto democratically, which is quite hard to make work well. And it's interesting, you mentioned John Golding, who's the progenitor of the famous quote, talking about Michael Foote coming into Labour HQ and saying, I don't understand these opinion polls. There were a thousand people at my rally last night and everybody cheered, to which John Golding replied, Michael, there were a hundred thousand people out in the streets and they all think you're they all think you're crackers. It's interesting though, thinking about the manifesto, Michael Foote trying and failing to, 
unite the party, a figure of the left, but sort of not really fully trusted by the Benites and trying to unite with the with the right of the party as well. To what extent was it also a question, and are these questions more broadly over time, style versus substance? Do you think if, for instance, I don't know, a more charismatic politician, uh, more telegenic politician, I don't know, if Tony Benn himself runs on that manifesto, that's an interesting counterfactual, isn't it? Because then the divide with Margaret Thatcher is even sharper. You know, does that change the result? Or was it as simple as the public saying, yeah. we don't much like these ideas? I, I'm always rather sceptical of the idea that um, someone uh, smiling and looking uh, <laughs> winning is going to change the big sort of tectonic shifts. I think at this point, you know, Labour had, had been, you know, the dominant party in British politics for much of the time, certainly since 1964 and, and in some ways ideologically since 1960, uh, since 1945. They've been through this great rupture of the basic kind of coalition that holds that together between the Labour Party and the trade unions in 1979. And, you know, you can't just reverse that by having a more winning leader. I mean, Ben, you know, was at this stage in his career, uh, I think, a more compelling politician than Michael Foote. Michael Foote had been extremely compelling uh, earlier in his career. Uh, Ben had been more of a technocrat. But um, no, I don't think that Ben would have... um, then would have swung it for them. I mean, you know, to the point you mentioned about opinion polls is very interesting. I mean, there was a, a, an attitude in Labour that opinion polling was sort of inherently consumerist to, to use this as a sellout to the Conservatives. And there is that sort of quite sort of combative, uh, hostile attitude to to the media, to, to ways of electioneering, which is not, you know, something that Labour had always had. I think we sometimes read back from the 1983 manifesto as though Labour had always been like that. The historian Laura Beers has done very interesting work on Labour's pioneering role in using marketing in the 1920s and 30s. So, you know, this is quite specific to this moment, but it does speak to the way that the party is sort of divided against itself. Interesting. So it didn't all start with Philip Gould in the uh, in the 80s and 90s after all. Um you talk about tectonic shifts, and one of the questions I've been pondering with people who've since written manifestos is how they sort of exist adjacent to much bigger debates, and they either ride the wave of those debates or they sort of stand as monuments, as with the 83 manifesto, to big arguments lost. And the striking thing, if we're looking at the 83 manifesto, is that some of the ideas that were so roundly rejected by the electorate in 83 have since been adopted by mainstream political parties today, you know, an industrial strategy, for instance. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, something that looks extremely old at one point, look from, looked at from a different perspective, looks very pressing. You look at what the Conservative Party was, uh, some people in the Conservative Party were saying, people like Richard Law uh, in the 1940s, or, you know, the, the nascent uh, uh, IEA in the 1950s. And, and at the time, this looks sort of bizarre and Victorian. But look at it from the 1980s, and it looks like it's very far-sighted. And I think you can see something of that there today. I mean, I wouldn't want to go too far with that. But it is striking that there has been a certain amount of um, reappraisal of this manifesto uh, by young academics um, recently. There's a book uh, by uh, edited by Nathan Yoll mm. of Progressive Britain. Uh, nobody's Benite, I think it would be fair to say. More of a post-Blairite, perhaps. Um, but that book contains an essay by the academic Con Murphy, uh, looking back at the 1983 manifesto and making you know, some of the arguments I've alluded to that this is in some ways uh, you know, to do with new thinking around, as you say, industrial strategy and how you think about a more national economy. Um, of course, the big policy, uh, which has taken on a great deal more uh, sort of presence in our lives, is, is the loony left idea of withdrawing from the European economic community 
society, uh, which in 1983 was seen as sort of extreme and strange and Michael Foote's odd hobby horse, um, by contrast with uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament, his other one, which, you know, hasn't uh, cut through. But no, there are all sorts of policies in there, which, you know, in different ways have manifested themselves later. I mean, there's an academic called Dan Lomas, who pointed out to me recently that, you know, the great fear and suspicion, sometimes to a level of conspiracy theory in the 1970s, uh, sometimes with great justification on the left of the security services, manifests itself in that manifesto with the idea of putting the uh, security services on a statutory basis, which was seen as very odd at the time and an intrusion. And now they're on Instagram and indeed being interviewed on Times Radio. So. Precisely. And it's one of those policies that is more constitutional policies that New Labour take on from this. So you have, you know, Freedom of Information Act, Devolution for Scotland, these sorts of ideas, which, you know, and indeed, you know, thinking about discrimination seriously as well, which feed through with that same generation through to New Labour. I think I, I would even argue that there's more of a connection between Benism and Blairism than is sometimes identified. I was very struck when I made a documentary about the 1981 deputy leadership, uh, going back to talk to some of the people involved at the time. They saw a, a kind of through line between those two things against old Labour in both cases. Uh, and, and even things like workers on boards, which, you know, uh, Nick Timothy was keen to introduce uh, when Theresa May was Prime Minister. Um, The other striking thing about it is um, the idea that Stuart Holland, one of the main intellectual sort of uh, drivers of the manifesto, Mm. had this great sort of uh, suspicion uh, towards uh, oligopoly. The idea that, you know, the free market is a nice story, but actually, if you look at the way that the economy really functions, there are these companies, you know, which have sort of this large presence, which isn't actually conducive to to real free competition. Now, that's an argument that was taken up later. He may not have got it from there by Ferdinand Mount in his book, The New Few about 10 years ago, which was an influence on Nick Timothy. Uh, and of course, Ferdinand Mount was the author of the Conservative Manifesto in 1983. So the the, the, uh, the trajectories here, look, viewed over the long term, are more complex than uh, the longest suicide note in history it, would uh, would have us believe. Indeed, indeed. And that's really interesting about the sort of, the, after, the afterlives of these documents that are really more relevant after the campaigns for decades to come than they are in the moment in terms of influencing anyone's decisions. As you say, big structural factors that are out of the hands of any policy wonk at play there. That was Phil Sinline, who is the political historian and author of the Times Political Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus. Uh, consensus rather. Thanks very much, Phil. But have things changed for either party? How are they going to write their manifestos for the next election? Lots of big questions as big as any faced by Margaret Thatcher or Michael Foote in 1983. The world's economy economy and foreign affairs similarly in flux. Britain is heading for another general election, almost certainly going to be held next year, and the parties are starting to think about the offer they will make to the country. Aisha Hazarika is a Times radio presenter and a former Labour Party advisor under Ed Miliband. She had a hand in writing the manifesto for the 2015 general election they lost. Uh, This is Ed Miliband launching that election campaign. My vow to you, the British people, everything in this manifesto is funded. The deficit will be cut every year. The books will be balanced and the national debt will be falling. So, Aisha, you had a hand in writing that manifesto for Ed Miliband in 2015. And listening back to that clip and remembering what the state of the debate was like at the time, almost bigger than any of the emphasis on individual policies was on that perennial question for Labour of how are you going to pay for it and do you trust Ed Miliband to be the guy to run the public finances? 
Yeah, I mean, when I look back on that time, the, the sort of, I'd say the two issues that were really dominating the political discussion was absolutely the, the, the deficit. And you will remember that in Ed Miliband's conference speech, his final conference speech before the general election, um, which he had memorised large sections of his speech, he forgot the section on, on the deficit. And uh, that was like quite a kind of painful uh, moment. What is Labour's process for writing a manifesto? Talk us through it from the start, because... As you know better than almost anyone on Times Radio, Labour is less a sort of political party as a collection of dysfunctional families, all of whom have individual says in different bits of the party's processes and the manifesto is is no different, is it? Yeah, it's a bit, when you say sort of dysfunctional family, it's sort of like um, EastEnders Christmas special sort of levels of kind of dysfunctional uh, family. But the, the process is meant to bring in... Uh, different groups from from across the Labour family and across the Labour movement. The goal of the manifesto process is to not just have it written in a, in a darkened room by sort of three people, although that does end up happening to a certain extent. But Labour has um, uh, a long sort of policy process um, into which uh, different groups can, can feed in trade unions, uh, constituency representatives, different affiliated groups to, to the Labour Party, they can all feed in um, through the policy process and the National Policy Forum. And then what tends to happen is in the months leading up to a, a general election, a representative from all of these groups will gather somewhere. Uh, when I was a special advisor, we always used to gather in Warwick. And all these sort of negotiations and deals would be hammered out often into the sort of, you know, we hours of, of the morning. So then what, once those agreements are made, you are then very much in the sort of run up to the manifesto process, which is still essentially the pen is held by a small number of, of people. And there's lots of consultation with all the different groups. But at that point, it does slim down and you're often just given um, you know, your section of, of the manifesto that applies to you as a, as a shadow cabinet person or, 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 or as a cabinet person. And part of the job of the Labour leadership then is to sort of split the difference between what it's had to agree for internal party management purposes, i.e. with trade unions, individual shadow cabinet ministers, uh, members at the grassroots, and with what it thinks an electorate will ultimately buy. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of eternal uh, tension for the Labour Party. And I think that's the thing which is really difficult. Although sometimes I do think that the leadership, interestingly, can be a bit more defensive and a bit more out of step, you know, in terms of where the public are. I remember, um, for example, in the run up to the 2010 general election campaign, when, you know, Labour was having a really, really difficult time we probably, if I'm absolutely honest, felt in our bones that power was ebbing away and that we were sort of nearing the end of our time. And I remember going to Warwick to have these um, negotiations with the party. And actually, lots of the trade unions and lots of the constituency representatives were actually more in tune with some of the anxieties that the public had, particularly on things like housing, for example. I feel like... Starmer's team. I was speaking to somebody um, the other day who is very, very involved in the policy process. And I think this feels, this cycle feels a bit different because Labour has been out of power for such a long time, but for the first time in a long time has a chance of getting to Downing Street. And they were saying to me that the policy process has actually felt a lot smoother right now because all sides involved do have the same goal, which is that they do want a Labour government. 
That was Aisha Hazarika, Times Radio presenter and former Labour Party advisor. She helped write Ed Miliband's 2015 manifesto. Well, what about the Tories? At the last general election, Boris Johnson went to the country with a fairly simple message. Let's get Brexit done. Let's get Brexit done. Let's get Brexit done. With this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? Get Brexit done! We've been paying attention. Joining me now is Robert Colville. He is director of the CPS think tank, Sunday Times columnist, and was one of the team who wrote Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto. Morning, Robert. Morning. I just played out clips of Boris Johnson talking about getting Brexit done. Surely all you needed to put in that manifesto were those three words and maybe two more, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I always said 2019 was the BBC election, Brexit, Boris, Corbyn. Um, but the other words you probably had to put in were, and we're not going to take your houses to, uh, to fund your social care. Uh, which was the uh, one of one of the uh, one of the slight mistakes the Tories made in 2017. Yeah, and so what is the so, so if that is the key offer, you know, Boris Johnson is going to be prime minister, or rather, Jeremy Corbyn is going to be prime minister. We're finally going to leave the EU. What is the you know to what extent is the rest of the document when you're writing the rest of the document? Is that about setting an agenda for government or? Is there an awareness that basically what all of what you write is probably probably going to sink into irrelevance in a couple of years' time? Or is, or is that unfair? I think that, that is unfair. I mean, partly because um, there was an awful lot in that manifesto beyond just getting get Brexit done. It was get Brexit done and then deliver mm. on people's priorities. And, you know, of course, you know, high, you know, nurses, GPs, potholes, whatever, the, you know, um, making the UK more business friendly, building lots of houses, you know, all these all these issues that um, that people cared about and the and the and the party cared about. Um, and, the, you know, the, the one of the things you're doing in a manifesto, you know, it they they are rarely as as influential in a campaign as they were in 1983 or arguably 2017 but what they do do is is they set a sort of binding agenda for government if you go to the annual report of a government department it will list what it's delivering on and it is delivering on the the the, the things that were promised in and the kind of the subject headings in the in the, the manifesto likewise there is a convention that um, you know the lords cannot block anything that was in a manifesto so if you want to get get stuff done you you put it in a manifesto, and it's, in fact, I think, I mean, the Conservatives and Labour. I mean, the Conservative manifesto is much more driven by just how, what what the leader wants, because that's the structure of the Tory Party. It's much more top down. But I think the real difference between manifestos isn't so much Tories versus Labour as government versus opposition. Mm. So when I got drafted in quite late in the process, actually, it was Minira Mirza and Rachel Wolfe who, who were the kind of architects of of twenty nineteen. But when I got drafted in, I did look back at what people people had said and essentially what you see is a sort of difference between people who are in opposition who can actually say hey we've got all these interesting ideas to do the following things and people who are in government where you do you do have the interesting ideas you do have things you want to do but you also have like quite a lot of ministers who are doing things already in their departments and want to keep doing them and so want to make sure that those that those commitments and those ideas are are, are reflected in the manifesto so, so it's if you're in government just by its nature they tend to be more sort of bulkier more institutional documents because because everyone just wants to have their wants to have their say whereas if you go back to the Cameron thing you had you know they they obviously had like a couple of in 20 they always had like years to sort of do beautiful graphics and charts and come up with a you know come up with a narrative about the kind of Britain they wanted to build it's interesting isn't it you talk about David Cameron there you touched on Theresa May's uh, failure with the dementia tax we can just play that infamous clip of her not quite you turning on it now. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. 
We are offering a long-term solution for the sustainability of social care for the future. That shows you how wrong these processes can go. What do you think Rishi Sunak will be looking to avoid? Because, you know, the Tories are their own uneasy coalition. Now, you know, they've got a free market wing. They've got a wing that would rather level up. They've got a, you know, the Nat Cons breathing down their neck as well. What do you think the big discussions will be ahead of putting together that manifesto for 2024? Will it be a sort of threadbare affair that focuses on continuing the work Rishi Sunak is doing or will we get a sense of the competing ideas vying for supremacy in the Tory party? So I think there are always two core messages for any political campaign, um, and you know, which is either it's time for a change or it's not time for a change. Or, you know, we or, you know, don't don't wreck it. Either it's don't wreck it now, or it's too dangerous to let the other the other lot in. Um, and I think you have to choose which one of those you're going to to go for. I think the um, not so much with I mean with with what's going to happen next time, but I think in in general. When the, the best manifestos and the ones which work are are ones which are a sort of seamless part of the campaign, where where effectively the message of the manifesto is is a is a an amplification or a variant of the overall message of the campaign, where yeah. everyone is on the same page. And where it tends to go wrong, I think, is partly because of because of occasionally sort of personality conflicts or factional fighting, is when you effectively have and we we you you know you, you've seen this in both parties, most main parties recently. Um, in various forms, you know, you have one group over here doing the manifesto, and another group over here doing the campaign, and they're not really talking to each other, or they're not, they, you know, they're not really, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of, there's, there's a sort of, there's a gap between them, or, a, or a tension between them, even. And I think that, you know, that's, um, that, that is, that, that's what kind of kill, that's what, uh, you, you, that, you know, people can sort of tell when your campaign isn't quite coherent. Yeah, and that was very much the case with your Labour rivals in 2019. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, I had to put... <laughs> I, had to do, I did a panel with Andrew Fisher, who was one of the guys involved in that, who was... Um, and it was, yeah, and he was um, you know, he was just sort of talking about how, yeah, the, just just the, effectively everyone had their own ideas, everyone had the, it, all these different voices feeding mm. in. And, and the, you know, the same with the... I mean, obviously 2017 with the Tories, but even um, back, you know, the, 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 under Cameron, they had Andy Coulson and they had Steve Hilton. They had a kind of hard-nosed tabloid, you know, let's give the voters what they want guy and a visionary dreamer, you know, walking around in sandals kind of guy. And Cameron never chose between them. And Indeed. so you had the campaigners, uh, you know... Reflect, trying to reflect both strains at once and quite succeeding. And that'll be that'll be the difficulty, I think, for Rishi Sunak and his divided party in 2024. Uh, and, indeed, and, indeed, and indeed Keir Starmer, whose inner circle is not a nest of singing birds either. That was Robert Colville, who helped write the 2019 Manifesto, Sunday Times columnist. You also heard from Aisha Hazarika, Times radio presenter, uh, and the uh, political historian Phil Tinline, author of the Times Political Book of the Year, Death of Consensus. That's all we've got time for on today's Red Box podcast. I'll be back on Monday. Hang on. No, I won't. Matt Chorley will be back on Monday. If only I was. Anyway, it's been lovely having your company. I'll hopefully speak to you again soon. But in the meantime, remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. Hold up. 